From WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University, I'm Byron Williams, and this is The Public Morality. Today on The Public Morality, we'll speak with economist Dean Baker from the Center for Economic and Policy Research about the economy and the 2016 presidential campaign. After that, Amy Traub from the Demos Institute in New York City will join us to discuss paid family leave. And political commentator Joe Tuman returns for a political recap coming up on The Public Morality. As the 2016 presidential campaign takes full flight, candidates, Republicans and Democrats alike, titillate crowds as they bemoan America's economy. From crony capitalism to the loss of manufacturing jobs, candidates speak to the multitudes that know firsthand that something is wrong with the American economy. But these critiques tend to fall short in that they are heavy with emotion, but light on the complexities of the problem. To discuss some of those economic complexities is economist Dean Baker. Baker is co-founder of the Center for Economic and Policy Research, located in Washington, D.C. Dr. Baker, welcome to The Public Morality. Well, thanks for having me on. Um, when, when you hear the uh, economic rhetoric uh, from the candidates on both sides of the aisle who are running for president this year, what are your thoughts? Well, I guess I'm frustrated that so much of it has very little to do with, you know, what the country's real problems are. So, you know, on, on, on the one side, the Republican side, you know, you hear these uh, screams about regulation stifling the economy and, you know, it's to my mind, is almost otherworldly. I don't know what regulations they're talking about. Um, Obamacare is supposed to be this nightmare that's killing jobs, and there, there's literally, and I look at the data very closely, very regularly, because I would want to know if it's killing jobs. There's nothing to support that. Um, and, you know, supposedly we're suffering from a crushing tax burden, and their, their proposals are for reducing taxes primarily on higher-income people. And that just does not seem to be the economy's problem. The Democratic side, I would say, you know, the candidates are at least a little more focused on, you know, what I consider real issues, talking about raising wages for, for people, because that is, where, of course, where most people get most of their income. Although even there, you know, I find, you know, uh, concerns that, you know, I don't think are grounded in reality. So, for example very large concerns about budget deficits. Um, that's just not a problem, which isn't to say they can never be a problem, but uh, you know a budget deficit's a problem when you have a situation where you have high interest rates, where you have inflation. Clearly, those are not issues today. Um, again, they could be at some point in the future, not today. Um, and the other aspect that I find kind of surprising, well, here it's just one, one again, it's the um, Federal Reserve Board is embarked on a policy of raising interest rates, and, and the point there is to, to slow down the economy, reduce the rate of job creation, again, out of a concern for inflation, but one that's unwarranted, and that has gotten a little attention. Senator Sanders has raised the issue. Uh, I think he said a lot about it, but he has raised it a couple points, and I don't believe uh, Secretary Clinton has at all. So if you look at, to my view, the key issues, you know, do people have good jobs at pay that could support them, could support a family? Are they securing those jobs? Can they take time off um, for family needs? Uh, this is something raised by the Democratic candidates to their credit. Um, do they secure health care? That is something that certainly both the Democratic candidates are talking about. But those have not been as central in the, the debate as I certainly would like to have seen them. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you know, when you were talking just then, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of classic movies. And um, I usually use quotes to make my point sometime, but I don't know if you remember the, the movie The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. And, Long time ago. <laughs> well, but, it, but there's a line in there where he says, when the legend becomes fact, print the legend. And that's sort of how I feel what's happened with 
the debate about Social Security, the debate about TANF, you would think that these things are just on the brink of, of collapse and they're just about to crush the economy. I mean, am I, am I right about that? Or is that close to reality? Well, you are right that this is being talked about that way, certainly on the Republican side. And, you know, again, the reality is, you know, 180 degrees at odds. I mean, in the case of TANF, I mean, it's a program that has been cut back hugely over the last 20 years. Um, you know, we could be bipartisan here because, you know, President Clinton was the one who signed the bill and supported it. Um, so, this, you know, both parties were responsible for the cutback, whether you want to say it's a good thing or a bad thing. But it's, it's, it's a relatively small program in the total budget, the number of people who get supported by it about half, maybe even less than the numbers that were supported by two decades ago. So the idea that this is a problem in the sense that we're spending too much, that we have too many people that are, are dependent on it, that, that that's really hard to see. And in the case of Social Security, here's a program that, you know, is overwhelmingly funded by the payroll tax. It had been running large surpluses for decades by design. And now we're approaching, you know, we're having the baby boomers retiring. So we're drawing or we soon will be drawing on those surpluses that we built up since the mid 80s and it's projected to be fully funded into the you know for the next two decades where at which point we will have a shortfall if we don't do anything but the idea that we should run around like chickens with our heads cut off because it would face a shortfall you know 20 years from now you know face a shortfall in the 80s and we dealt with it you know we end up raising some taxes cutting some benefits not something people like to do, but, you know, I, I used to go around uh, when the 80s were more recent. Uh, I used to go around when I was giving talks about Social Security and office preface them by saying, okay, when tell me bad things that happened in the 80s, and usually people would talk about, well, they might talk about the Challenger disaster, or, you know, famous mm -hmm. disaster, maybe some natural disaster hitting uh, in the U.S. or other countries. That some people would jokingly say, oh, their team lost the Super Bowl or something. I never once had anyone say the Social Security tax increases in the 1980s were a bad thing that happened, which isn't to say at the time they didn't think they were right. a bad thing, but, you know, a few years later, no one even remembered them or didn't remember them that they were something really bad. So a point just being that we aren't talking about some sort of disaster where we're going to hit a wall and it's going to be 2035 and no one's getting a Social Security payroll check, and Social Security check. They just cannot happen, literally cannot happen. So, yeah, I mean, this is a phony fear. Oh, well, let's just stay with that for just a moment. Um, let's put some, if we can put some real numbers to it. What what would a uh, say an increase in the payroll tax? What would that look like to to each uh, uh, American? If that if, you know to 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 um, solve the Social Security problem, the, the the impending deficit. Well, a couple points to make on that. First off, we don't necessarily have to solve it all through an increase in payroll tax. I mean, one of the reasons why we've had a, a why we're facing a shortfall is that we've had so much upward redistribution, and the tax is currently capped uh, at one hundred seventeen thousand. Uh, I forget the exact hundred. I think it's three hundred dollars. So, what that means is, you know, if I earn above that, if I had two hundred thousand, I earn three hundred thousand. If I own five million. I pay the same amount in Social Security tax as someone who earns 117300 So you don't pay any tax on income above that. Well, one of the things that can be done is you, you could raise or many have proposed eliminating the cap, which would go a very, very long way towards, towards uh, ending the projected shortfall. So that's one thing you could do. There are others. But if you were to do it through a payroll tax increase, if we were to, to say, okay, what we just do, you know, do what we've done before, raise the payroll tax, be roughly three percentage points, which isn't trivial, but uh, I should point out the projections from the Social Security trustees are that over the next three decades, wages will rise by more than 50 percent. 
I know a lot of people always say that, and people are skeptical. They look at me, well, I haven't seen my wages rising. I'm skeptical, too. <laughs> but, but the point I always make is, why don't we focus on the 50% rather than the 3%? Um, you know, so in other words, the main story here is we should be focusing on people's before-tax wages and asking, okay, why aren't you seeing the 50%? Because if people do see the 50%, I suspect most people, they'd go, okay, I'd much rather have the 50% increase in before-tax wages and pay the 3 percentage point Social Security tax increase than have neither. So, you know, if we get our Republican presidential candidates and say, well, I'm not going to raise your Social Security tax, well, that's a good thing in terms of, you know, people not having to pay higher taxes. But if that also means they aren't going to see any increase in their wages, um, they end up losers in that story. So, you know, this, to my view, has been a horrible misdirection that people end up focusing on the less important issue that, you know, at some point we might need more money for Social Security, some of which, maybe all of it, will come from uh, higher taxes. But the more important point is, how come their wages aren't rising? See, I just asked you a question, and in your response, I think, kind of gets back to the first question I asked you, because your response then will would naturally, and in this particular discourse, would in, invoke uh, you're guilty of um, uh, uh, class warfare <laughs> if you if you remove the cap, and you get that kind of that kind of rhetoric coming back, and we can never have a serious conversation about um, plausible things that can be done. Yeah, and you know these are things. You know, look, I understand higher income people don't want to pay higher taxes. Lower income people don't want to pay higher taxes. Um, you know, I understand people object to it, but the, not having a serious discussion, I mean, it's, you know, where do you put the cap? You know, again, some people say eliminate it altogether. I have reservations about that for reasons I can go into. But the the, the main point here is that these are, these are things that have to be issues we could talk about. And when you try and shut it down, this is class warfare. You know, they're, they're just, uh, you know, that's absurd. Right. You know, um on the campaign trail uh, on both sides, whether it's a Donald Trump has, has mentioned it, uh, Cinder Sanders has mentioned it, you know, about jobs leaving America. Are there policies or something you'd like to see that could be put in place that could stop the type of hemorrhaging that, that they're referring to, assuming that those critiques are accurate? Yeah, well, one of the big issues has been currency misalignment. This sounds really nerdy to people. But, you know, It's a like, nerdy show, sir, so go right, go right ahead. All right. So... <laughs> The main thing, we're running a very large trade deficit today. It's, it's over 3% of GDP. It's over $500 billion at an annual rate. So, so the point I always make about this is trade deficit is money that's creating demand in other countries, in Europe, in Japan, in China, in Canada, wherever it might be. It's not creating demand in the United States. And right now we're suffering from a situation where we have unemployment, high unemployment because we don't have enough demand. And if we had a smaller trade deficit, there's no magic to zero. I don't care if we have a trade deficit. But, you know, if we had a smaller trade deficit, that would mean more demand in the United States. So question, how do you do that? Well, the far and away the most important factor in determining the size of the trade deficit is the relative prices, which, on the other hand, depend on relative currency values. So this is where we get to the issue of currency misalignment. Because the dollar has been very high relative to other currencies, and here China really stands out, I'll come back to that in a second, that makes our goods more expensive relative to goods produced in other countries. So our goods uh, become expensive for people living in China, in Japan, in Europe, and their goods are cheap for us. That means 
we aren't going to export a lot because people in those countries, people in Europe, goes oh, goods made from the U.S. are very expensive. On uh, the other hand, for, for us, when we go to the store, we see, oh, is, you know, products we're getting from Europe, from China, those are very cheap. Well, the way you address that is by bringing down the value of the dollar. So that's the idea of currency misalignment. Why is the dollar so high? Well, people say that's the market. Well, not quite, because we've had a number of countries. China is the biggest, the most important, but they're far, very far from being the only one that have been deliberately propping up the dollar. They've been buying up vast amounts of dollars in order to keep the dollar high against their currencies so that they would have these large trade surpluses. So what I would say is that we really want to change that policy. We want China to stop buying up dollars. They have stopped. They still hold a lot. They still hold over $3 trillion. Um, and we want them to, to allow the dollar to fall, which is what you expect to happen when you have a country like the U.S. with the large trade deficit. So have the dollar fall and have our, our trade move closer to balance. So what I would argue is we should be looking to, to have a currency policy where we bring down the dollar against the value of other currencies, most importantly China, but others as well, and that will move us closer to balanced trade, which I think would be hugely important for, for, for workers. Now, um, switching gears ever so slightly, um, can there be a serious economic critique by any uh, elect, uh, anyone running for higher office, for, for the presidency in this case, that does not include income inequality? It's hard for me to envision someone not talking about it. I mean, it's, it's, it's a real problem. Now, what your answer is, I mean, there's all sorts of different answers. I know conservative economists who would give very different answers than, than I would. But to say that it's not an issue, it's not something we sh- should concern ourselves with, you know, I think is a little hard to imagine. Now, I know some conservative economists who go, well, you know, that's unfortunate. I mean, uh, you know, I don't think many people will say they think it's a good thing that people are poor. But, you know, I'd say it's unfortunate, but the issue is that, you know, they don't have the right skills. That, you know, we'd like people to have more money, but they're going to have to have better skills so that, you know, people willing to pay them more. You know, it's an argument. I, I, I think there's always some truth to it. It's not zero true. You know, you take the poorest person and go, okay, suppose they'd been through med school. Well, then they'd probably have more money. Right. You know, and the reasons why they weren't through med school, you know, they don't talk about that. So, but, but to just ignore it and say, you know, either you're not going to talk about it or you don't think it's a problem, I think that, that's very hard to take seriously. And if you would, let's just step back for some, for some of our listeners here. Um, some, you know, when, when income inequality is, is usually um, thrown out, um, there's very little that talks about the so what. So why is – talk about the overall impact, why this is detrimental to the economy in your view, uh, income inequality. Well, I mean, obviously it's detrimental to the people, but, you know, part of the story of income inequality is that, you know, people become disaffected. They, you know, this is a generational issue. I mean, I often hear people talk about, well, we don't care so much about inequality, we care about mobility. Well, it turns out the two are inextricably linked. So even if we say, okay, you know, we have these people in their 30s and 40s and they're working at minimum wage jobs and they're never going to have much in life and, you know, that's unfortunate, but we can't really do anything about it. We want to make sure that their kids have opportunities. Well, guess what? It's that, that's not easy to do. Um, at this point, there's an awful lot of research that shows that if someone's parents are low income, they're very likely to be low income. And that's even if they turns out they do good in school and, you know, they, they overcome all the obstacles, they still face all sorts of barriers. So if we want to make sure that people can be productive members of society, we have to make sure that, you know, they have a decent standard of living, that, you know, their parents are able to support them properly, give them the support they need when they're in school and growing up and then have a fair shot. 
And the alternative is that we get a large percentage of the population that's disaffected, that, you know, won't be productive members, that won't be working, and, you know, more likely, you know, obviously be criminals. I mean, you don't see Wall Street people holding people up with guns because, you know, maybe that's not the sort of thing they would do in any case, but the practical matter is they could stand, make a hell of a lot more money with uh, other things, many of them which might also be legal, but they don't involve holding people up on the street with a gun. As a perfect segue, since you mentioned Wall Street, it's a perfect segue to my next question. Um, is Wall Street still buffered by the notion of being too big to fail? I would say it is, and you know, there's been a lot of debate back and forth on this, and uh, you know, this has come up uh, certainly between Clinton and uh, uh, Secretary Clinton and Senator Sanders, because uh, Sen- Senator Sanders is saying he wants to break up the large banks, and um, uh, Secretary Clinton is saying, well, we've already addressed that problem with Dodd Frank, or largely addressed that. I would say that you still have banks that are too big to fail. And, you know, as a practical matter, I, I sometimes play games when I'm giving a talk somewhere. I go, you know, you think if Goldman Sachs turned out to be in real trouble, would the government let go out of business? And no one thinks that will happen. <laughs> um, so I, I, I don't think we've gotten that behind us. Now, you know, I, I won't trivialize Don Frank if there were good reforms. They are good reforms. But, you know, two points. One is enforcement is always an ongoing problem. So, you know, one thing is to get the rules right, but the other part is get the enforcement right. And that's often very difficult because it's often, you know, regulators are overworked. Um, you have powerful interest on one side, and it's often hard to represent the public interest against, you know, a Goldman Sachs or Citigroup, wherever it might be. Um, the other point is that, you know, the they ostensibly have the authority to break up large banks, but... You know, again, we've not seen them do it, and I don't think anyone's betting on them doing it. So I think it's still, you know, I think too big to fail is still very much a problem, and, you know, I, I would certainly like to see uh, steps taken, you know, whoever ends up in the White House. I should also point out one of the things that was striking, one of the people who was in the Bush administration, in fact, the, minister, the person who administered the TAR program, the bailout, the bank bailout, program, Neil Kashkari, who's now president of the Minnesota Federal Reserve Bank. He just was appointed at the start of the year. Um, he said the exact same thing, which was, which was quite striking. I mean, uh, he was not a sort of person that one would expect would be calling for breaking up the big banks. But, you know, one of his first talks as president of the Minnesota Fed, um, he said, you know, we still have these very large banks that pose a risk to the economy. And if we want to make sure that, uh, you know, they don't get in trouble and have to be bailed out, we should break them up. I'm going to... Uh... Um, for our listeners, just real quickly, would you give a Reader's Digest version of uh, Dodd-Frank and what, what it was um, designed to do? Yeah, so Dodd-Frank was the financial reform bill that came out of the crisis. This was uh, Dodd, of course, was head of the Senate uh, Finance Committee and uh, Senate Banking Committee, and uh, Barney Frank was the representative, was head of the House Financial Services Committee. And <clears throat> this was designed to prevent the sort of abuses that we saw uh, leading up to the financial crisis. And it certainly puts in place a better regulatory, considerably better regulatory structure than we had previously. So among other things, it can require banks to hold more capital. Uh, point being that uh, capital is their own reserves. If they lose money, it's their own money. Um, one of the problems in the financial crisis was that you had the banks that went under, like Lehman and Bear Stearns. Well, Bear Stearns was rescued, but would have gone under. They had very little of their own capital. So when they began to take losses, <clears throat> they were quickly in a situation where they were unable to pay off all of their creditors. So if you have capital, if you have a lot of capital, and let's say you're sitting, you know, let's say a Lehman, you know, and throwing out numbers without knowing exactly what they were at the time, let's say they had um, had, had uh, liabilities of $500 billion, assets of $500 billion, 
and they had $100 billion of their own capital. Well, they could lose a lot of money and still pay back all of their, 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 all their creditors because it would come out of their own capital. And that was one of the big changes in Dodd-Frank, that uh, they now have to hold more capital. They also did other things. You know, we, we had, uh, had AIG with all these uh, credit default swaps. It was on the order of $600 billion of credit default swaps, just an incredible amount. And that, that's what actually put AIG under and why they had to be bailed out, because they couldn't honor these credit default swaps. Well, the problem was those were completely unregulated. No one knew, or at least no regulators knew, that AIG has issued $600 billion. That now has to be on the books. So in most cases, I'm not going to say there are ways around this, but in most cases, if you have a company like AIG, whoever it might be, that are issuing derivatives, credit default swaps or other types of derivatives, those have to be somewhere visible. They always have to go through clearing houses or go on exchanges. So the public records of that, so the regulators will know what sort of commitments they've made. So there's a long, long list of other changes, which, you know, I'd bore people to death, and I, in any case, couldn't list them all. But, you know, basically, it's sort of good housekeeping for the financial sector is how I think of it. Oh, okay, well, we're, we're going to stay on the same vein, though. Um, Senator Sanders, one of the things that he has talked about uh, is re- is bringing back Glass-Steagall. A, does it, would that make a difference? And B, also give us, give us another Reader's Digest version of what Glass-Steagall was. Well, let me do B first. All right, um, do B. <laughs> Glass-Steagall, uh, this is depression-era legislation, so that was their financial reform coming out of the, the crash, the, the banking crisis that led to the Great Depression. And what Dan sought to address was the problem where you had investment banks. These are banks that, that, will, that will underwrite uh corporate bonds, uh, corporate stock issues, in other ways, take positions in companies um, that would underwrite those. And commercial banks, which are you know where we go with our saving account or checking account, where we go if we want to get a mortgage. And Glass-Steagall required those to be kept strictly separate. So if you want to be an investment bank and you want to engage in this more risky activity of underwriting stock issues, bond issues, go ahead and do it. But you have to be separate from commercial banks. So the issue of commercial banks is, you know, our, our deposits are insured. If I have, you know, $10,000 in checking account or money savings account, I don't have to worry if my bank was doing foolish things because the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation is going to back me up at the end of the day. So I don't have to worry about that. So the idea of Glass-Steagall was, on the one hand, you'd have commercial banks that are engaged in relatively simple, mundane activities. They could issue you know, car loans. They could issue mortgages, relatively limited types of, uh, of lending. And then you have investment banks that are much freer to do what they want, but the two are st- separated. So in principle, we aren't supposed to worry about investment banks getting themselves in trouble and going under, as several, of course, did. Um, Glass-Steagall's repealed in the Clinton administration, I believe it was 99, they passed the repeal. So that allowed you know banks, investment banks, and, and commercial banks to merge. Citigroup was the most obvious, where they just basically combined several commercial banks and investment banks. The others did that to a lesser extent. And what Senator Sanders is proposing is to bring back Glass-Steagall, bring back the separation. I'm inclined to agree that that would be a good thing. Now, there, there was a step in that direction in the Dodd-Frank bill. Um, they inserted what was called the Volcker Rule after the former, uh, Paul Volcker, former Paul Volcker. head of the Federal okay. Reserve Board. And that, that said that if you take government-guaranteed deposits, you're basically not allowed to hold positions in companies. So you aren't basically allowed to do what investment banks do. Um, so it wasn't a strict prohibition on being an investment bank, but you can't hold positions in companies as investment banks might do. You can't hold stock. That's what I say positions. That's what I'm referring to. Mm -hmm. 
that was that was a good thing, and it has been somewhat effective as best I could tell. What I worry about is going forward, this gets back to the enforcement issue. People on Wall Street naturally are very clever, and they have a lot of money at stake in finding ways around a regulation like the Volcker Rule. So I worry that even though it seems to be relatively effective insofar as, you know, I've looked at what it's done, you know, in 2014, 2015 into this year, if we go 10 years out, I wouldn't count on it still being as effective. So I like the idea of having the strict separation that you have in Glass-Steagall. And frankly, I don't see an argument against it in that I don't see what the downside is. What's going to happen to, you know, do we, our investment banks did perfectly well as investment banks when they were separated from commercial banks and vice versa. So I don't see, to me, it, it looks like you're taking a needless risk by, by allowing investment banks to merge with, with, with commercial banks. Sticking uh, with a uh, question with the economy, we're, we're talking with uh, Dr. Dean Baker. Um, what is the actual relationship between the health of the economy and the nightly Dow Jones Industrial Average Report? Very, very little. Um, you know, and, and that's for two reasons. One is that even in principle, stocks are not supposed to be a measure of the economy. They're supposed to be a measure of corporate profits. So if something happens that, you know, it ends up being the case, let's say, you know, workers, uh, big unionizing drive fails, you know, we'll say it's in a major industry, in the airplane industry, whatever it might be. Well, we'd expect those company stocks to go up because, you know, the unions probably will get higher wages for their workers. At least that's what they, you know, that's what they're hoping. That's what the workers are hoping. So uh, lower wages for workers means higher profits, higher stock prices. Well, that's not good for the workers. Um, so even in principle, it's not supposed to be a measure of the economy. It's a measure of future corporate profits. Those can go together. I mean, suppose, you know, things look good. You know, the economy's growing rapidly. Wages are rising, but so are profits. Okay, then the market will rise, and that will mean, that, you know, good for everyone. But you can certainly have profits rise at the expense of wages, which obviously is good if you own a lot of stock, but it's not good for, for workers. So it's not even in principle supposed to be an economic measure. It measures profits, future profits. The other point is just that there are fluctuations in the market that don't bear any relationship to anything in the world. If that sounds weird, I realize I'm getting older here, but in <laughs> 1987, um, not that long ago, well, I guess 30 years almost. Well, um, you didn't remember Liberty Valance, so uh, you get a pass on bringing up 1987. So. <laughs> okay, so, so 1987, we had what was called the, you know, we, we, had, we had a crash in, in 1987 where the stock market fell about 25% in a single day. And there was literally nothing, and I'm saying this because people have looked at it very closely, you know, literally nothing you could identify in the economy that led to this sort of fall off. So it wasn't like we got a, you know, we, we got the jobs report and we found the economy had just lost 200,000 jobs. It wasn't that, you know, uh, we found out that a major bank was bankrupt or anything. There was literally nothing you could point to that was, you know, really bad news in the economy. So we had the, the market dropped 25% a single day. It recovered much of it the next day, about half of it the next day, and eventually over the next year, year and a half, it recovered the rest. But here you had this huge movement in the stock market that corresponded to nothing in the world. And the point I take away from that is that we'll, we'll often see large movements in the stock market that don't have anything at all to do with the economy. And you know, people, people hear about it in the nightly news, and they go, oh, my God, the market fell 2%, and they think they're supposed to be really worried. You know, some of them, if they have a lot of money in the stock market, maybe they should be, you know, if they have to sell it or something, you know, soon. But, but you know, most of us better, of course, don't have a lot of money in the stock market. So, you know, as a practical matter, I tell most people, you know, well, market went down 2%. You know, who won the baseball game? You know, that that's <laughs> kind of the way you should think about it. Um, what, I'm going to 
uh, a few more minutes we have together, I, I want to touch on something that um, I've heard you say before, and it, and it caught my eye, and, and, and I've done some writing on it uh, based on you. So um, so all those negative emails on this particular column, I'm going to forward them to you. Okay, fair enough. But uh, um, in your opinion, where should the minimum wage be right now? You know, I, I have a lot of friends who've done research on minimum wage. I've personally not, but I've read a lot of the stuff, a lot of the research. So I'm just saying that I'm not the most expert person, but I am familiar with a lot of the research. You know, I, I would feel more comfortable with having a target of $12 an hour in 2020 than the $15 an hour that, you know, Senator Sanders is supporting and many others. And the reason for that is that we just, it's pushing the minimum wage to a level that we don't have a lot of experience with. Um, it's makes it very high relative to the median wage, the middle wage in the economy. And I do worry that it would lead to a lot of unemployment. So, you know, I know we get this argument from conservatives that, oh, raising minimum wage will lead to unemployment. And, you know, again, I've read enough of the research to be pretty comfortable saying that, you know, raising a minimum wage, you know, currently we're at 7.25 an hour, so raising it to 12, you know, that'll be five years out or four years out at this point. Um, that that's, that's a big increase. But, I think, you know, based on the research we have and, you know, precedents both in the U.S. and other countries, I think that will not lead to much unemployment. I'm not going to say zero, because clearly some people will lose their jobs, but these are short-term jobs, so I don't think that's a bad thing. I mean, it's a bad thing people lose their jobs, but, you know, basically what we're talking about is, you know, it might take you two weeks to find a job rather than one week, but when you find it, you'll be earning, you know, 40, 50 percent more, so I don't feel too bad about that story. But when you talk about raising it to 15, I do worry that we would be losing a lot of jobs. And that, I think, is really problematic because here the story that the conservatives say is true. You know, these are, you know, you don't want people who are just starting out, younger workers, you know, I mean, teenagers, I understand these are younger workers. Some of them have families, they need higher pay. Um, but if they can't get a job, we haven't helped them. So I think 12 is, is a good goal. You have high-wage cities. You know, San Francisco is, is raising their wage to 15. I forget whether they get there in 2020 or 2021. Same thing in Seattle. Um, some other cities have Los done Angeles that. has done something Lo similar. Los Angeles is a lower-wage city, so we'll have to see. I mean, that, mm -hmm. that, that one I'm a little uncomfortable with. But the wage structure in San Francisco and Seattle, I feel pretty confident can support a $15 an hour minimum wage. Uh, I hope Los Angeles is able to. I mean, they're on that path, and hopefully that will turn out okay for them. But that that's a little more problematic. But where you have higher wage cities, you could certainly go above 12 an hour. But when you talk about the nation as a whole, you know, you have places like Arkansas, other areas in the south, where 15 an hour would put you probably at about 70th percentile, you know, well up the wage ladder. And it's hard for me to believe that wouldn't lead to a lot of unemployment, and I don't think it, many people want to see that. Well, that, that's a, another perfect segue um, to, to my last question. Um, is the, the minimum wage, um, just the way you just discussed it with, with certain high-wage cities versus some low-wage communities, is this something that should be looked at regionally? Like, say, where we're broadcasting from in Winston-Salem, um, we probably wouldn't need the same minimum wage as San Francisco. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. You know, so I, I think what we want is to set the right floor, and I think twelve dollars an hour as a national floor makes a lot of sense. And then say, okay, you know, where you have a high wage city, where you have a San Francisco, where you have a Seattle, you can go above that in some states. You know, some states are higher wage states. So it might make sense for some of the states. Uh, you know, Washington State as a whole, maybe they should be at thirteen, probably not fifteen, but maybe thirteen. So I think it makes sense to set a national floor to ensure that, you know, people are getting, I'm not going to say great, you know, but something, you know, at the bottom everywhere. 
um, and then where you have a labor market that can support a somewhat higher minimum wage to, to do that at either the local level or the state level. Uh, Dr. Dean Baker, I, I want to thank you uh, for joining me today on the Public Rally. Thank you a lot for having me on. If you take your cues from sound bites, you might come to the conclusion that paid family leave is but another attempt by liberals to provide people, in this case women, with more free stuff. But it is much more than that. It is a comprehensive policy that has demonstrated amazing benefits in every state where it is currently implemented. Moreover, it has the support of an overwhelming number of Americans. To discuss paid family leave is Amy Traub, a senior policy analyst at the Demos Institute in New York City. Amy Traub, welcome to The Public Morality. I'm happy to be here, Byron. Well, it's, good. it's great to have you again. Uh, let, let's begin with you explaining what uh, paid family leave uh, actually means and, and, what, and what will it actually do. Certainly. In nearly every country on Earth, so that's all of Europe, Asia, Africa, most of South America and the Pacific Islands, countries guarantee new mothers some paid time away from work after they have a baby. Most countries also guarantee new fathers paid time off work. And lots of nations have laws ensuring that if you have a close relative that's injured or very ill, you can get paid time off the job to take care of them or just be by their side. That's paid family leave. It's the chance to be present for your loved ones in some of life's most important moments without worrying that you're going to lose a paycheck. The rest of the world has it, but the United States does not. So now, as you well know, uh, probably the, the primary criticism is that it's a job killer. How do you respond to that charge? I love to unpack that logic a little bit because it's essentially saying if no one ever has a baby that needs someone to love it, if no one ever gets sick and needs care, if no one cared um, about being next to their parent when they draw their last breath, then we could have more jobs. It's really a barbaric thing to say when you think about it, and it's not even true. Competitive, flourishing economies across the world are providing paid family leave. And here in the U.S., we have three states that have established paid family leave programs, California, New Jersey, and Rhode Island. Those programs have been studied, and there is not a big negative impact on job creation or on hiring. Businesses overwhelmingly report that it's really actually had a minimal impact on their operations. And some companies say it helped them to boost employee morale and productivity. On top of that, we're seeing today a lot of the nation's most dynamic businesses, companies like Facebook and Netflix and Amazon, expand and enhance the paid leave benefits that they offer their employees. Um, just on that note, why, why don't we sort of walk through what, what, what a paid family leave system, what, what does that look like? Is it, I think people tend to have a lot of different images, and it's just like um, it falls into the category of more free stuff. So why don't you just walk through, let's say, if, are you familiar with California's program? Yes, sure. I'd be I'd be glad to talk about um, you know really what what a lot of the the program how a lot of the programs look that have been established and proposed. Often it is a system where employees pay a small weekly um, payroll tax to support the program. So it's often something like forty or fifty cents a week that every employee pays. And then when you need paid family leave, you can tap into that insurance and get a portion of your typical weekly pay for weeks when you are on leave. 
and the reasons that people are able to take leave, typically it's it's for a new child, whether that's a newly adopted child, a new baby, a new foster child, um, and to be with a, a close relative or loved one who is sick or injured. So that could be taking care of a, a parent um, or a spouse or a sibling um, or a child who's sick. So, so the way so the way this works, this would be the, the way it would work is something very very akin to say unemployment insurance. Would that be- yes, yes, very similar. Now. I- I, I, you Sorry, know, one thing to clarify uh-huh. is that in the U.S. we have the Family and Medical Leave Act, which provides unpaid leave to people who work for large employers, um, but it doesn't cover everyone, and it is unpaid. So in the states that have set up a system, it provides at least partial replacement pay, and a lot of people are able to take it who otherwise uh, couldn't afford to take unpaid leave. Now, what what I, I wanted. To- touch on was I, I recall when President Obama mentioned this at the last day of the union um, it was Democrats who largely applauded and, and Republicans largely sat on their hands but isn't this something that's supported by a large number of Americans? Yeah it seems like everything in Washington these days is a divisive issue whether it should be or not paid family leave is one of these things that really shouldn't be. I think everybody from every party cares about their families and wants to be there when their loved ones need them. And polls definitely show that a majority of Republican voters and independent voters support guaranteeing paid family leave. It's just that some members of Congress are not getting the message, at least not yet. Yeah, but but as you also you just stated, I mean, everything, I mean, ha- has to be divisive. So if we're in Washington and ask for a cup of coffee, we're going to we're going to have to debate about that. Um you know, I read, I read um, some of the pieces that you've written on the issue, and one of the things that struck me is this number uh, 12 weeks, you know, for, for leave. Is there something about that 12-week time frame that's important? Why that number as opposed to six weeks or 18 weeks? Why, why 12? Yeah, well, 12 weeks, it's about three months. And when you're talking about a new baby, that's enough time to establish breastfeeding, which has a lot of lifelong health benefits for infants. It provides more time to set up a schedule of immunizations and medical checkups for mother and baby. So it's not surprising that having at least 12 weeks of paid leave has been linked to better health outcomes for babies and um, to lower rates of depression among mothers. And then we've also seen evidence that fathers who take substantial amounts of leave when their babies are born remain more involved throughout their children's lives, or at least their childhoods. In a lot of European countries, it's, it's not 12 weeks. It's six months of leave or more, that's really the norm. And so 12 weeks is really a minimal amount, but a lot of advocates see it as a reasonable compromise in a country that currently doesn't guarantee any paid leave at all. You know, well, I mean, another argument against um, uh, family uh, paid leave, which is it's sort of akin to the job killer, but it's, it's, it's one where the argument goes that it, it really, this, the unintended consequence of this is to hurt hurts poor women. I'm sure you've heard that argument. How, how, how do you respond to that? Yeah, it, it's interesting because when we send a message that parental leave is just for women, for mothers, then we do see primarily women taking it. But in countries where leave has been promoted for new fathers, and there are policies that encourage fathers to take it, then taking leave is more egalitarian, and it's recognized as a benefit for any working any working person. And then there's no longer a way to discriminate. And I, I've been seeing these surveys of uh, young fathers, millennial dads, 
saying much more than previous generations that they really want to be engaged as caregivers for their children. They want parental leave and they want more workplace flexibility to be involved dads. Uh, We were seeing recently on the internet photos of Facebook founder Mark Zuckerberg taking his um, parental leave. He was changing his daughter's diaper. He had a photo taking her to the doctor's office for an immunization. And I think Pictures like that make a big impact culturally. We just need the policy to make that possible for more, more fathers and more men. Now, now, I know know part of that. I'm going to stay with that for just a moment because part of that argument goes that that after the Americans uh, with Disabilities Act uh, was passed, you saw a reduction in the number of men um, who were disabled uh, being employed. Uh, is there any data that suggests that, that that the numbers actually drop in terms of employment for those who take uh, who do take family leave? Is there any, anything suggest that? You know, I think the best way to assess the likely impact of paid family leave would be to look at how it's working right now in California, New Jersey, and Rhode Island. Mm-hmm. And we don't have to wonder how it might work because we can just look at these states. And we can also look at Canada, which offers a much more generous program than anyone's proposed in the United States. Um, and I, I just think those programs are a better place to look than the Americans with Disabilities Act, which is really a very different type of law. And, 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 and just to reiterate, I mean, in, in California, uh, New Jersey, Rhode Island, I mean, there's nothing that shows any kind of detrimental economic impact. There, there has not been evidence of a detrimental economic impact. Mm-hmm. And, and it's, um, you, I mean, you've touched on that, but how do you respond And you sort of touched on this earlier, but I want to come back to it, if you don't mind. Sure. Um, How do you respond to the person who says, you know, I don't have children. Why, you know, why should I subsidize others who are making a personal choice? Yeah, I'm really glad you asked that question. Because paid family leave is so popular, but then we do hear exactly that objection sometimes. And I think it comes from the focus on bonding with a new baby, which is an important use for paid family leave, but the truth is in most of the state and federal proposals out there, paid leave is also um, something that can be used by any working person who's caring for a family member who's, who's injured or ill. And we see that the AARP is one of the biggest supporters of paid leave in New York, and that's because of all the Americans caring for their aging parents and spouses, which is a, a huge and growing demographic, the, the aging population of the U.S., So to somebody who objects to paid leave, I'd say maybe you aren't expecting a baby now. But if you have an aging parent who may someday need your support or a spouse who might require care to recuperate from a sudden illness, you will benefit if you have access to paid leave. If your brother out of the blue gets hit by a truck, paid family leave will help you afford to take the time off to be by his side in the hospital and through physical therapy. And if you're the one who ends up getting hit by a freak accident or illness, You might be healthy today and think you don't need anyone's help, but we don't get that many guarantees in life, and paid family leave could be the thing that enables a loved one to be there for you when you need them. So I would say this is something we really all have a stake in. You know, is it just because, in your view, that that the narrative created around uh, paid family leave is, is sort of truncated around something that women who have babies get and that's it? Is that, is, that, is that part of the problem here? Is it sort of, not that that's a bad thing, but... Well, maternity leave is... Uh, maternity leave is part of paid family leave. And it's... In California, certainly, it is the most common use. 
Um, and so, but but paid family leave can't be reduced to just maternity leave. It has all of these other uses that are that are really important to people and and very unpredictable when we might need or want them. Uh, no, this is uh, uh, important important legislation. Um, I, I I know um, we have a presidential election coming, but so where do you see the trajectory of uh, paid family leave uh, at the state level as well as the, at the federal level? I think this is a policy that's really picking up a lot of momentum. Right now, New York State is very close to approving a paid family leave plan, which is exciting. And it's worth noting that Republican presidential candidate Marco Rubio, who just left the race but certainly was had been one of the leading candidates, he had a plan to offer tax credits to businesses that voluntarily offer paid family leave. I don't think his plan would have been as effective as a universal program, but I think it shows us that this is a concern that's really resonating for a lot of voters. And now candidates, including Republican candidates, are starting to pay attention. Well, well, Amy Traub, it's always a pleasure to have you on the Public Morality, and thank you for joining us once again. Good to speak with you, Byron. That was Amy Traub of the Demos Institute. Coming up, political commentator Joe Tuman drops by to discuss President Obama's recent Supreme Court nomination. Happy to have Joe Tuman return to provide us with political analysis of the nomination of Judge Merritt Garland to the Supreme Court. Joe Tuman, welcome back to The Public Morality. Thanks so much for having me. Always a pleasure. It's great to have you. Um, as, as we talked the last time you, you were on, I said we wanted to have you back to just get some periodic uh, uh, political analysis. And so a couple things happened this week that seemed worthy uh, of a brief discussion. Yeah, and I, I want to begin by by acknowledging the first time um, or the, um, that you were on the public rally without calling his name. You told our listeners that that Merrick Garland would be President Obama's choice of Supreme Court. So now that we've established that you're clairvoyant, <laughs> at, at least here, at least on the public rally, that's our story. We're sticking with it. Was this a good selection, a safe selection, a political selection, or all of the above? I think it was a little bit of uh, all of the above. Um, there's no question that the, the president uh, wanted to and needed to make uh, a choice um, by picking uh, uh, this particular individual. He was picking someone who, as I think we talked about before in the profile of someone who might get through, was someone who had been confirmed before, someone who had uh, achieved a, a level of Republican support uh, in the past, and someone who generally is re- regarded as a centrist, and more importantly than being a centrist, was someone who was perceived to be uh, uh, an individual who might play the role of being a unifier uh, on uh, on the big court, on the Supreme Court, um, the sort of role that Justice Kennedy plays now as well. And having someone like that who could sort of help to forge majorities is always useful. Uh, and I think that those are the reasons that the president uh, puts uh, uh, Garland's name forward. Um, but at the same time, uh, it's it's been disappointing, really, to see uh, the Senate uh, Republicans, um, you know, just refusing to hear uh, or 
or hold hearings at all on this. Uh, you know, in my perspective, from my perspective, as someone who teaches constitutional law, there's no rule about how they're supposed to vote. I mean, that's entirely up to them. Um, but advise and consent, you know, Article 2, Section 2 of the Constitution has always been interpreted to be to go through the process. And it, you're not advising or giving consent or not getting consent when you refuse to play at all. Um, that's uh, it, it's ironic to me, Brian. Let me put this a different way: that uh, the person we're replacing on the court, Justice Scalia, who was someone who uh, was such a stickler for not reading words into the Constitution that aren't there, uh, would now be faced with uh, for his his successor with the Republican Senate that believes that advising consent means. Uh, only when your own party is in control of the White House will you advise and consent. I mean, that's not in the Constitution either. And uh, uh, that seems to be their perspective. It's, I find it to be a terrible irony that they're replacing Just- Justice Scalia with logic like that. Um, talk to me, if you will, uh, about, uh, first of all, the, 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 the ramifications of, of, of proceeding like this. I mean, the, the Republican Senate proceeding in this manner and what does that do to the body politic as a whole? Well, it, 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 in some ways, it continues uh, something that has really been bad for, for several years. I mean, we're focused right now on judicial appointments and at the Supreme Court level. But the truth is there's a backlog of lower federal court uh, judicial appointments as well that have not been filled um, for all manners of reasons, mostly because Republicans were, were stalling on the process because they didn't want to play ball or oftentimes what will happen in these situations is in order to uh, enable the process, they demand concessions politically from somewhere else. And so deals will be made. Um, uh, to give you an example of that, uh, I went to law school at Bolt Hall, which is a UC Berkeley school, and one of my favorite professors there was uh, uh, Willie Fletcher, who was a great person. And uh, uh, Professor Fletcher, then Professor Fletcher's mother, um, was uh, a judge on the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, perceived by conservatives to be very liberal in her positions. And uh, Willie Fletcher uh, himself had been nominated for a seat on, uh, I believe, on the Ninth Circuit several times, um, but it never seemed that it was going to go forward uh, until a deal was made. Like I said, they extract concessions, uh, and his mother agreed to resign, and then they put his thing <laughs> forward uh, to go forward. And so it's always something for something. And so in that context, to look now at them playing these kinds of games, it's not really that unusual. It's, it's, it's unfortunate. It does feel to me as an observer to this process, though, in terms of how this affects the body politic. Um, I mean, I don't want to make this exclusively about uh, the question of race, but this president in particular seems to have gotten more than his share of this and uh, just, you know, such negative response uh, from the people in, in the Congress generally and in the Senate in particular. Um, that you wonder if this would have happened to somebody else. And it's been very disappointing, frankly, to see this. It's not healthy. I think that uh, this sort of uh, behavior on their part uh, is maybe something they'll pay a price for in November um, because it tends to echo some of the negative tone of the presidential campaign on the Republican side right now. And, uh, you know, People pay attention to this. Uh, I think that uh, if if the president is wise or his supporters are wise to make a big enough stink about this, uh, it, it may be that uh, voters in the fall, independent voters, for example, uh, that Republicans need uh, uh, to keep their position in the Senate or to get Donald Trump elected, 
we'll see a connection between the Senate behavior and Mr. Trump's rhetoric, which is very negative. And a lot of the polls indicate that Donald Trump cannot beat Hillary Clinton in an open election. Um, it's quite possible the Senate, uh, the Republicans could lose control of the Senate, and this might be one of the reasons that they do. Well, now, if um, Senate Majority Leader uh, Mitch McConnell was sitting here right now, he would yeah. probably say to you, I'm only doing what Harry Reid, Pat Leahy, Vice President Joe Biden, and the president himself has done in previous uh, judicial nominations to the Supreme Court. How would you respond to that? Well, I, I don't think that's especially accurate. Uh, in point of fact, I think that, that uh, just to go through some of those examples, uh, Biden talked about that, but that was not for a Supreme Court appointment. It was for, and not that that matters, but it, it technically was different. Uh, it was for another federal court appointment, and it was something he said as an offhand comment. It wasn't behavior he was modeling uh, necessarily uh, at the time. Um, I, I don't I, I don't dispute that both parties have played games to some extent uh, on this, um, but uh, refusing to hold hearings, which is where I started this, as opposed to you get into the process of hearings, they ask negative questions and they end up voting against your candidate, right, which is the more typical way of, of doing this or stalling the process. Uh, I don't think that's something that you can say has been a historical practice of the Democratic Party. Um, this party just really seems, forgive my language, hell-bent on not allowing uh, a president who is still president uh, to do his constitutional duty and, and, and send up names You know, for uh, this. The president doesn't get to appoint a Supreme Court justice or a judge. The president uh, submits a nomination. And uh, the way the process is supposed to work, then the, the, you know, the Senate, under advice and consent, holds hearings and considers it. And what we have now, as I said, is a Senate uh, Republican group that refuses to do the minimum, the process. They're just their version, like I said, of advice and consent is we refuse to do anything until this president is gone. And as I said before, if the framers were here, because you were asking me if Mitch McConnell is here, I'll, I'll counter you this way. If the framers <laughs> of the Constitution were here, I think they would be stunned to see a Republican Party that believes that advice and consent, only, as I said, only applies when your party's you know, person is in the White House. Then we'll play ball. But otherwise, we refuse to do our constitutional uh, responsibilities. Um, not healthy at all. It's, 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 it's the wrong way to go about this. And, uh, and frankly, even if Democrats have participated in this, perhaps in other kinds of court appointments before, not the Supreme Court, um, this kind of behavior now is just going to invite payback later. It's, it's a vicious cycle. Uh, it, it, if you want to show bipartisan spirit and that you're responsible about doing your job, then do the job. You know, otherwise, this becomes an endless cycle. As you were talking, I was wondering, and, I'm, and I'm, I know I'm asking you to speculate now, but for the political gamesmanship that you touched on earlier, yeah. w would it have been easier um, had President Obama, say, uh, nominated someone from the uh, infamous Ninth Circuit, I mean, emphasis in, 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 in Senate speak, Republican Senate speak, say someone yeah. from the Ninth Circuit who is who they would say is out of the mainstream, have the hearings, give them an up or down vote, and you say and, and vote them down, as opposed to someone like Judge Judge Garland who who um if he uh appears uh before the Senate hearings will probably look very well and probably raise questions on the why why is this person not uh being nominated. Do you think that there's something to that? Well, uh, possibly. I mean, there is a school of thought out here. I, I, I didn't propose this, so I'm, 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 I'm 
borrowing what I've heard from a colleague who teaches at a law school here locally. That's all we do around here uh, at the public morality. We okay. just borrow stuff, so you're, you, well, you fit right in. So, um, uh, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll paraphrase uh, what others have suggested who know uh, judge, uh, uh, the judge in this particular case, and that is that uh, given his age, of all things, that he was a safe choice to put forward and given that he was a centrist because – of course, once you uh, go through the process and either they don't do hearings or they reject you, let's say, um, they're not, you're not going to put that person's name up again, right? And so sacrificing him now uh, means, uh, if they held hearings, I suppose, uh, the likelihood there – is, there is no likelihood he would be nominated again, obviously enough. And uh, if Mrs. Clinton wins uh, the White House, which is a distinct possibility um, – you know, the likelihood then in, uh, in terms of a judicial, if this, this seat is still open, would be that uh, Republicans, if they're still in control of the Senate, will be faced with a much more, uh, I won't say a much more liberal, I'll just say with, with another candidate who is probably very much more in line with the thinking of, of Mrs. Clinton, if she's the new president. Which means, you know, you've got somebody now, if you're a Republican, who's probably closer to your perspectives on a lot of issues you can grandstand and refuse to confirm now, or uh, you can wait and see. And if, if Hillary Clinton wins the White House, you might be faced with someone um, that you'll have real issues with ideologically. And I think that was part of the calculus, maybe, in, in putting uh, this judge forward now. Well, and as you well, as you well know, um, Joe, that, that once um, someone is confirmed to the court, and, and th- th- there's no guarantee that past judicial uh, decisions is, is a real indicator, is, is, is an accurate indicator how um, they will uh, perform at, at, the, at the highest court in the land. I'm, I'm thinking specifically, although he wasn't at the court at the time, but I'm thinking about Earl Warren uh, with yes. Eisenhower. I'm thinking about uh, Byron White with uh, President yep. Kennedy. I mean, so there's still no guarantee once, once they get on, so... No, there's not. And I, I, I think, as you and I may have discussed uh, at a different time, um, a judicial appointment, whether it's a, a district court position, a circuit court of appeals, or the ultimate, which is Supreme Court position, these are jobs that come in appointments, appropriately so, with life tenure. They're, they're the only other people who get that are people like me, professors, you know, right. and, and that means we have the job until we choose to retire or to leave or we die, you know, in office. Got the thing. And uh, one of the things that's important to note about that is uh, the founders, I think, were quite intentional when they made that eventually the criteria, not the criteria, but, but the, uh, I guess, the classification for the job, because they really deliberately wanted to be a judge to be above the political process, not to be worried about running for re-election or having to factor in what the public thought about things, that you more or less called each case like you saw it according to the law. You interpreted it and you made the best decision you could. And one of the things we know historically from watching people who serve on the bench, Byron, is they eventually evolve. And uh, if you hear enough cases, if you serve for 20, 30 years, and you, you, and you really hear a lot of challenges on certain kinds of issues that are related, you evolve in your thinking. You, you reflect the worldview and the life perspective that you have on this. And uh, so in that sense, what somebody did when they were a district court judge or a circuit court judge you know, a couple of years ago might be part of that worldview. But, you, you know, to know what they would really do 20 years later or 15 years later, you have to take into account also all the cases that they haven't yet heard that will also influence their judgment. And so 
asking these silly questions in the appointment process when they have it, the confirmation process, you know, which are really mostly about Roe versus Wade and abortion, are kind of pointless because I don't think they're being dishonest when they say, I can't answer a question about a case that I haven't heard yet. And the other thing is, 15 years from now, I might have a very enlarged view of this, which gives me a particular point of view that I just don't even know what it is now, right? Um, and it's, it's not as simple as, do you support abortion rights or not, or whatever the question is going to be, do you support gun control or whatever? It, it's, uh, they evolve in their thinking. Just, I guess, the short answer. Well, the, the, in the few short minutes that we have left here, I, I, I want to ask you something of the utmost importance. How's, uh-huh. how's your NC2A bracket going? It's not looking so good. I, I think I should have listened to the president who picked his Hawaii team over my Cal Bears. <laughs> well, well, Cal just, now, but they lost. The they lost round. Tyrone Wallace. That was big. Now, that was big. They did. They did. And uh, Jabari Bird had to sit the bench today. I, I heard different stories. There's a lot of Cal alums where I are. And one rumor was he had the flu, and another was he had back problems. But whatever it was, he was riding the pine today. So Bird didn't play also? No. Uh, uh, he did not. And uh, they didn't have a full complement. And I think the Bears as well, obviously, has been distracted by a very important issue this right, week. Right, right. With the assistant um, coach. You know, it's it's uh, this isn't about politics, but sometimes I think we worry about our young athletes and the rest of it. I I think Jalen Brown and Ivan Rapp, I think the world of them. I really wish they would play another year in college because uh, one of them needs to put on some more weight. That's Rab, and the other I think would just benefit from playing more at this level. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, I think in our system they're probably going to be tempted by a sports agent who will say if you stay another year you might get injured and then you won't be a lottery pick. Well, yeah. well, well let, me, let, me, let me just chime in about um, this, is the, this is one of the few times I can give my opinion. Yeah, um, please. Tell um, me. How, how's your bracket? Well, 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 well um, I didn't have Yale over Baylor, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, how about that? <laughs> but, but, but here's my comment about, here's my comment about um, Hawaii, uh, uh, the president picking Hawaii over Cal. Yeah. I mean, that's like, remember, remember when Chaminade beat Virginia? Yeah, true. The only true. way you're going to take Chaminade is if your kid's playing for Chaminade, you got some connection. And so yeah. so the president, he, we can give him a lot of credit in a lot of areas. That was a hometown pick. He, he that just, was a hometown <laughs> pick. Well, boy, was he right. <laughs> yeah, he was. Sometimes it's better to be lucky than good. Joe Tuman, I want to thank you once again, and we, and we will, uh, if your time allows, we'd like to have you back periodically, maybe after the um, the conventions are over, and have you back, and and, um, and you can hey, sort listen, of critique. That, pardon me. That'd be my that'd be my pleasure. And by the way, for your listeners, let me uh, leave you with this: we should definitely talk as we get closer to June. California primary is looming, and for the first time in a long time, it will be relevant, at least on the Republican side of the equation, because of all the delegates that are in play here in California. Um, this is going to be the next big state uh, that uh, the party elders in the Republican Party who are looking for ways to get to, to deny Donald Trump the nomination uh, are going to look at California and see if this is one of those places. And, well, and for once, our votes in this state, at least if you're a Republican, will matter. Well, on the, the first time in the history of the public morality, someone just booked themselves on the show on the air. So we got it. We'll, have, we'll, we'll do that. <laughs> okay. Joe Tuman, thank you so much. All right. I'll talk to you later. Take care. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at Byron at publicmorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. 
And for those who would like to hear the archive broadcast, you can find those at our website, which is publicmorality.com. That's our show for today. The Public Morality is produced by WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at The Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams.